This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello there, and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm Adam Russell. Hey, guys. I'm Ryan Key. Hey, Adam. Hey, Ryan. I'm Nick. Good to see you. Hello. Missed you guys. It's been like, uh, well, I guess you weren't there last week, but hey, I missed you too. We <laughs> chat, though, you know, on the internet. We do. We have devices that connect to each other. Yeah, that's true. I also played uh, Story of the Year and Yellow Card at Emo Night on Saturday, so I felt like I was with you on Saturday night. Nice. You you sent me the cutest <laughs> little video. It was so cute. I was trying to be real cute. You were. What it was. was. <laughs> It was a success. Mission accomplished. (laughs) So uh, we have a guest today, a guest that I'm really excited about. Yes. A guest that is so perfectly, appropriately selected for this episode, who was gracious enough to join us. Her name is Kate Sabaker, and she is... Well, I'll tell him about you in a second. Just say hi. Hi, I'm Kate. It's Kate. Kate. I know of Kate, firstly, as a contributor to Tested, tested Tested.com, Tested, the, uh, the YouTube channel, the... The everything that tested is Adam Savage is tested, but Kate also works at Tippett Studio, which is an animation and visual effects production company founded and run by Phil Tippett, who many Star Wars fans may know for his work on Star Wars, going back to the very beginning with stop motion and many of the creature effects that made Star Wars what it was in the early days and beyond. So Kate, tell the listeners a little bit about what you do specifically, just to give them some context, because you're going to provide a lot of insight for what we're talking about tonight. Yeah, uh, I am a visual effects model maker. So I got my start actually making miniatures for visual effects films. Then I sort of transitioned more recently into doing stop motion sets and props. So still everything in miniature, but now I get to work a little closer with Phil, who specializes in the stop motion world. Awesome. So cool. So what was your path like to working with Phil and what led you to working at Tippett Studio specifically? Uh, I left LA and uh, stopped doing as much of the visual effects for for big movie scenes and started working on a Henry Selleck-directed stop-motion feature. And after two years, Disney shut us down, kicked us all out. Rude. So there were a bunch of stop-motion crew just hanging around the Bay Area. And Phil found out about it and was like, hey guys, I'm working on a project. Anybody who wants to like come pitch in, come hang out. So I started working with Phil. One by one, everybody else from my crew dropped off. Ten years later, I'm still there. Nice. <laughs> well, the um, as everyone probably knows from reading the title of this episode, we are talking about the Disney Plus documentary Light and Magic about industrial light and magic. The company founded by George Lucas at the very beginning the company that was created just to make Star Wars happen. And as we mentioned, Phil Tippett being so important to Star Wars, you working with him, uh, this is is great. I'm really stoked. It's all working out. Yeah. (laughs) I've been discussing the series with him in the recent weeks as well. So I've gotten a few of his hot takes. Awesome. (laughs) 
<laughs> the funny thing or funny and interesting thing about Phil that you mentioned, because I was a guest on the tested podcast, this is only a test, just, I guess, the week after celebration. And I talked about mm-hmm. having seen the panel for this documentary and Phil, who from the outside, at least, is just this very kind of like curmudgeonly kind of endearingly curmudgeonly kind of character, um, talked about how seeing the documentary actually choked him up. And that caught me off guard. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought if if Phil's choking up from this, I'm going to ball through the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I assume that means you choked up. Yeah, it was great. It was amazing. (laughs) Someone's crying. Adam's crying. Yeah, yeah, I'm emo, man. Uh, but Kate, you, you, you kind of mentioned that he's, that may be his, uh, the facade he puts up, but he's kind of a teddy bear, right? Yeah, for sure. He, um, I think that as the years have gone on, he's gotten gruffer and gruffer and gruffer on the exterior. And every now and then you'll see footage of him when he was younger, some of which in the show. And he's being absolutely goofy as hell. And yeah. it's it tickles me to watch some of that because I'm like, oh my God, look at him like giggling. Yeah. Um, but really on the inside, he is, super sweet, really kind, really thoughtful. Like he looks out for everyone at his company as if they were his family. So there's, there's a lot more to him than just the gruff guy that swears a lot and hates most people. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) This documentary, we'll talk about this a little bit later is a really personal look into the history of ILM and especially the vulnerability and the transparency that Phil provides is one of my favorite parts about the whole thing. For sure. You talk about family for sure, but he talks about his personal journey with mental health and and whatnot. And it's, it's just great. It's really eye-opening and heartwarming and all the stuff you want out of a good documentary series. So we're not going to do a formal kind of stolen plans, not going to do the the formal format of this episode, but I do want to start by just kind of giving the, the rough details of what this all is. If you haven't watched it yet, you should probably just pause and go watch the series because a breakdown of a documentary is like, it's like a cover of a cover song. Just watch the documentary first and <laughs> listen to us later. So this is a six-part documentary series on Disney Plus that uh, was launched recently, directed by Lawrence Kasdan, writer of many films that you may know of. Small, small films. Little ones like Return of the Jedi and things like that. <laughs> um, is that Star Wars? It's it's a Star Wars film. That's yeah. one of them. Um, the Empire Strikes Back. You may have heard of that one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So six episodes, like I said, and this kind of it goes back to the very beginning and brings us basically up to modern day volume style Disney production. And it does focus quite a bit on the beginning, but it really takes you on the roller coaster of the the CG revolution and everything. So just to give a quick overview of the episodes, the first one, episode one, Gang of Outsiders, is really about assembling the original ILM team. Episode two, On the Bucking Bronco. It's a lot about George's backstory and then about getting Star Wars finance, getting it off the ground, the, the, the roller coaster that a lot of us know, that, that story of just the nightmare that was the original Star Wars production, trying to finish the film on time and so on. Episode three, Just Think About It. That's moving up to Marin County, working on The Empire Strikes Back. Episode four, I Think I Found My People. There's a lot of Spielberg in this one talking about the camaraderie, the group, and really solidifying ILM as the company that he wanted to work with on every project for the rest of his life, basically. (laughs) Episode five, Morphing, starts to kind of lay the groundwork for the CG revolution, talking about the Abyss, Terminator 2, kind of leading us towards Jurassic Park. And then episode six is fully 
here we are, it's the CG age. And it kind of wraps with John Favreau talking about the volume. There's the, a great scene where Lucas comes in and sees the volume and they talk, you know, Kathleen Kennedy talks about finally George's garage, you know, that, that old story here it is that, you know, we really made it happen and kind of brings us up to present day. It's very comprehensive. Yeah. I, I just love all the old footage, man. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. somehow I, I was thinking about this cause I just rewatched it for the second time. How much better looking the fo- footage from the seventies and eighties is than the footage of the nineties and like turn of the century. Oh, like, yeah. Why does that look so much better? I mean, I know why but it's like <laughs> film versus digital, but I'm like, everyone looks cool in 1977 and 1980. And then everyone looks not cool in the year 1999. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've talked about at length how it's human nature to take advantage of a technology before it's really ready to be yeah. used. And how how much that happened in the 90s with CGI. It is funny, though, in like kind of a meta point that you're making, Nick, about how the behind the scenes stuff that was shot on 8 and 16 millimeter Mm -hmm. in those days looks so nice and crisp and all like (laughs) the interlaced (laughs) DVI, you know, like 480i digital stuff from the late 90s shot on handy cams looks like garbage. Yeah. And it just reminds me of the... uh, there's, you know, the scene in Boogie Nights when they're transitioning to video. Mm-hmm. Boogie Nights is one of my favorite films of all times. I love P.T. Anderson. So they, they're switching to video and Jack Horner's like, this is, if it looks like shit and it smells like shit, it must be shit. And he's like, no, no, it's, it, it's cheaper. You just, you just keep filming. There's, you just, and that was very much what was happening with digital video. But then it got us to where we are now, where, you know, a consumer camera is, you can kind of make a short film on the thing in your pocket or a prosumer camera that you get for a couple thousand bucks. Mm-hmm. It's bonkers. I, I, I think there's another layer to it. You ready? I, I kept having the thought that Star Wars was punk rock and I, it's punk rock, you know, totally. like in the 70s, 80s, 83, like that was all punk rock. Everyone was figuring things out. It was way more hands-on, whatever. And then the nerds came in mm-hmm. and, it was, and then they started to look like nerds. They started to look like they were sitting in cubicles all the time. It's two different worlds of what we're talking about here. And it follow, you know, ILM follows the the punk rock story of, you know, they got signed to a major label and everybody quit. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it worked, right? I mean, that's the thing. Punk rock worked. And then everybody who was punk rock thought punk rock wasn't cool anymore because punk rock was successful. It's a it's an interesting conundrum you find yourself in as a successful musician or now in this case, a successful visual effects person. I mean, who would have thought that you would feel like, oh, we made, we crushed it so hard with this, with these first two movies that now I want to quit because it's too big. You know, like yeah. it, it, it's interesting to see that happen in, in another field because, you know, Nick, Adam, myself, obviously we're, we're so familiar with that story. Like you're, you're a small band in a garage and then you, you get this big break and then you're not cool anymore. And that's such a, that's such a universal theme watching something like this. Something that it to just put a cherry on top of this punk rock conversation, something about the way that all of these filmmakers, all of these folks and uh, the original team kind of came up showing their backstories. The majority of them grew up making films of their own with whatever they could make it with, you know, whether it was stop motion, whether it was a, just a short film on eight millimeter or whatever, they were making this stuff work in a time when you didn't have YouTube. You didn't even really have many you know, there was no like, I, I remember reading a book called How to Make a Short Film or How to Make a Feature Film for Under $10,000 and Not Go to Jail. You know, all of these like <laughs> DIY filmmaker resources that we have now, they didn't have any of that. They had a magazine, Monsters, what was it? Monsters. Kate? Just called right? Monsters, right? And 
they were making this stuff on their own as kids and that DIY punk rock, get it done just because I want to mentality is what made them the perfect group of people to make a film like Star Wars. So mm-hmm. Kate, as a, as a kid, were you, oh, there it is. Mike's got it. Look oh at God. that. That's amazing. What is, what is your backstory like? And did you connect with the backstories of, of this original ILM team? Yeah. I mean, I definitely was a, a little weirdo, um, <laughs> making stuff just for myself. Um, and actually it was, it was Phil one time I was, um, busy melting all these army men for, uh, the project we were working on mad God. And he came in and he said, you know, I used to do this a lot as a kid, you know, just torch army men. And I said, <laughs> yeah, me too. And he was like, I've never met a, a girl who did that as a kid. And I was like, yeah, I had, I had like my dad's cheap high eight camera and I was like torching army men in the backyard and trying not to burn the place down. So it was definitely, you know, I would be experimenting with filmmaking, but mostly it was just making anything and everything I I could get my hands on. That's awesome. Was there a film or something you remember that inspired you to, to, to go there? You know, a a film like a film like Top Gun for Adam and I that just uh, (laughs) defined our entire life to date. Um, you know, I, I don't want to be cliche and say Star Wars. Um, that was something I, I shared with my dad. It was like a very like personal relationship thing. Like we loved Same. watching that together and it really inspired me. But then watching some of like the weird stuff that maybe I shouldn't have been watching. I don't know if you guys have seen Return to Oz. Um, yes. But there's a few like terrifying, weird, monstery things that I saw as a kid that I was like, I don't know what this is, but I, I need this in my life. <laughs> that definitely inspired my long love of monsters. It's so interesting how, how much comes out of, I mean, you know, like we mentioned the magazine, monsters, the idea of making monsters, the, the nomenclature or the, the term creature shop came from this idea of making monsters. And the earliest examples of those on film or the, the, the big ones that really inspired were King Kong, you know, the original King Kong and the, Ray Harryhausen films that seem to inspire everyone on this team. Did you go that far back once you kind of realized what you, that you were into this? Did you kind of do the reverse engineering of the current stuff, the stuff that was current for you at the time to learn about those films? Yeah, I definitely started to take more of a, a deep dive into it once I figured out that that was what I was into. And especially um, the more people I met, and we would find that like we had common interests. They would be like, oh, well, you have to see this movie and you have to see this movie. Um, obviously, the Ray Harryhausen um, movies are just incredible. I think it's almost not as possible for someone um, in my generation to be as affected as, say, the people in the original like ILM crew generation were. Because when right. they were children, that literally was never seen before. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I had grown up seeing monsters on TV, you know, like on TV or in a movie. So it wasn't as earth shattering that it was possible, but it was more that I knew I was attracted to. And this is something that a lot of um, people in the practical effects industry uh, relay is that when when something is a real object, your mind goes, I can touch that. That is that is realistic. Mm -hmm. I can tell that it's real, even if 
maybe the scale is wrong. Maybe it's not that high quality of a model or they didn't shoot it right. It's still more realistic. It has more of an impact on my brain than something that I'm like, okay, well, that's a CG dinosaur walking yeah. across there. Is there like a phrase or a term for that? Um, well, it connects to the idea of the uncanny valley. Well, there is there is something in 1999 where that was the state of the art CGI and and, yeah. and we all had a hard time processing it. We were like, that looks fake. Yeah. Like, it's really, it's rough, you know? But we're all also old enough to, like, Kate, you're saying, have seen movies, or the only thing that that we had seen was practical effects for the most part. Yeah. Kids now, I would assume, connect just as well to CGI characters, animated characters, because... Here we go, Boomer. They're they're seeing it all... Preach it. They're seeing it all (laughs) from birth. So, you know, the emotional connection that comes from a well-animated character, regardless of what it's made from... I think can resonate as long as you experience it young enough. But I think that's been happening for a while. I think that's why Avatar was such a massive hit film. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I will go, I'll go to my grave. It looks like Who Framed Roger Rabbit to me, to me. It looks like (laughs) actors with cartoons. But at the time, if you're a young person, you know, a 10 or 12 year old kid who's like excited about films and going to the movies and you saw Avatar, holy shit. I mean, you're, like your brain must have melted between your ears seeing that, right? I mean, I get that. I totally get that. And and I feel the same way a little bit about the prequels when we talk about that. I think that that younger generation that saw those films blew it blew their mind. But yeah. for we were we three, four, five, well, six or six of us here, two that are not on the pod right now, but we're at that age where we were we were right on the cusp of seeing those films and not believing it. You know what I'm saying? Like we we had we had seen so many practical effects growing up and seen this revolution that we're talking about tonight with ILM as young people that the the CGI revol- revolution that came in our late teens and early 20s was like it doesn't I don't I don't really buy it but to your point Adam I think kids now yes absolutely they're they're looking at this stuff in the same way that we looked at Star Wars in the early 80s as kids when we saw it for the first time they're blown away the same way we were blown away by Star Destroyers and the Millennium Falcon. You know, it's like, but but it's it's so funny to compare it to something like that to where I was at the perfect age to be like, this doesn't look real. I don't get it. I don't connect with it, you know? Well, there's sort of a, a modern renaissance almost happening because I think of what you're talking about, that a lot of these kids grew up with only seeing CG things and they're very used to it. So then when they see something that is a practical model, which a few more people are starting to put back into their projects again, they can't figure out, they can't pinpoint it. They're like, that looked really good. Mm -hmm. And it might be the same reasons why earlier on people might have, you know, um, complained about it because it it looked a little too much like a model. Now people are wanting that. There's, um, there's a guy, Hal Hickel at um, ILM who recently was just saying that as well, who he said, you know, a lot of people commented that some of the Star Destroyers in, um, I'm trying to remember, I'm sorry, it might've been Rogue One. Anyway, they were commenting, this looks so much like a model, whereas that used to be an insult. Now it's taken as a compliment because you're like, look how real this is. Yeah, there is a thing. And the, the folks at Corridor Crew talk about this all the time that the the purpose or like the objective in VFX, in digital VFX, is to make it look like whatever it is, make it look like it does on film, make it look like the model, make it look like, you know, you don't make it look real, you make it look film real because we have over a century now of of precedent as to what 
something's supposed to look like on film. So there's a challenge there. I think that it took, you know, 25, whatever it's been now years to not only refine the craft, but to understand psychologically how we experience it, you know? So it's, it's a really tough problem to solve ultimately. And I think we're getting to a really cool place now. There's a, a an issue that's been coming up a lot in, um, I think actually Phil has a, a quote uh, in an interview saying, it used to be that for visual effects, you had these artists put something together and you just had to make sure that it looked good enough. And then when once we moved into you know the digital age, it became pausing frame by frame and inspecting every frame for what's wrong. Um, and so you're, you're, you know, going pixel by pixel and pointing it out. And sometimes a producer needs to be able to say, oh, you need to fix this. Like they need to have at least one thing to complain about so that they can act like they've done something. And so unfortunately that's just, it makes the studios go back over and over and keep changing, changing, changing. And, And I think Phil's quote said something like it's, it's as if you are furniture movers and you put it in the place where you think it looks good and they keep making you move it over and over again. And eventually you just say like, screw it, lady. I don't care where the couch goes. Like I'll just put it wherever you want. And there's no more <laughs> yeah. input. There's no more passion. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where things are leading when you overanalyze. Whereas original models, <laughs> the, the joke was, you know, do this in front of your face if the model looked realistic through your hands, then it was good enough for the screen because it's going <laughs> to yeah. be this small in the background for two yeah, seconds. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to see it. And they'll see it in a theater and they can't pause it. And yep. they'll never watch it at home. Like in the late 70s, early 80s, some people were thinking about maybe the idea of something like a VCR being around the corner, but most weren't at all, you know, yeah. totally different time. I want to talk a little bit, maybe now is a good time to just go ahead and get into kind of the list I've been talking about, and then we'll see where the conversation takes us from there. There's something so incredibly, God, what's the word? Like, it's hard to overstate the impact of industrial light and magic on the entire world, at least the worlds that we're, we're in, involved in, not just the effects that they created, not just the movies that they were a part of bringing to fruition, but the inventions that were necessary to make those movies and how those went on to impact other things. So I have a list going here. So let's go ahead and get into that now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Starting from the, the very beginning, the, the very concept of a special effects or VFX house or studio was kind of invented by Lucas getting this team together because he went out, he, he mentions this early in the documentary, he was looking for a studio that could achieve everything he needed to make Star Wars happen. And that didn't exist yet. Yeah, There were teams within the bigger studios, but there was no standalone special effects or VFX studio at that point. So mm-hmm. just the very concept was essentially invented because George Lucas wanted to make Star Wars. The one thing that I noticed too a lot was just the idea of, I think they showed like Flash Gordon or something like that and Mm -hmm. that camera was still and everything else was moving. Just the idea that ILM had that early to move the camera or have the camera placement be like the big deal 
seems so simple now to say it, but it hadn't been done before. So they were like, yeah. why, why is the effect moving? Why would the camera should be moving along the trench run? You know, like that type of thing. Yeah. How about finding out that the Star Destroyer was upside down? In the opening shot. Yeah. Right? Problem solving stuff, you know? My brain my brain exploded. And that the Tantif was wi- like attached by wire to the front of it and also upside down. Yeah. Crazy. So, Nick, you mentioned camera movement. So it, it really was Lucas and Spielberg at that time that fully changed the game. Because, like you said, it, it used to be just a lot of locked off shots. You know, there was a pan or a tilt or something. There were zooms. But there wasn't a lot of like run and gun camera moving, camera on dollies, all, all this kind of stuff, the way that Spielberg especially really pushed it. And he kind of said, I don't remember what the quote was, but it's, it's just something like the camera's going to move in every shot, period. I want, you know, the way he wanted to convey, you know, especially in action movies, something like, uh, you know, uh, an adventure movie like Raiders, it's not just about the person running across the screen. It's about feeling that, that move, that, that jump, that whatever. So there were a lot of traditional filmmakers at the time were like, who is this kid moving the camera all over the damn place? You know, it's just, it was, it was revolutionary, literally. So those two, I mean, it's just crazy what those two did together. Motion control, talking about moving the camera, the idea of, and this, it's explained so well in this documentary, they do a really good job of explaining kind of complex or unfamiliar concepts to folks who aren't into filmmaking or visual effects in ways that really make it understandable and, and simple. So motion control, the idea of you've got a bunch of different elements that you need in a shot. You've got a Star Destroyer, you've got a bunch of X-Wings, you've got this, that. They're all moving different directions, and they're each these little models. Before, you could just move them around with CG. You had to film each one, and you don't shoot it by moving the model. You shoot it by moving the camera. So in moving the camera, there are a lot of times where you have to make the same exact move so you can get multiple things happening in there. You can get multiple exposures. You know, you've got just the one for the the luma mat or the alpha mat, you need to get that so you can cut out the object out of the black or the blue. Then you need to get one for the lights and then one for, you know, the lights at different exposures because you've got the the engines and all this stuff and the camera has to do the exact same move every time. So they literally built computers and programmed them from the ground up to make this happen. This idea of motion control, the Dijkstra Flex, which was kind of like the first system created by mostly by John Dijkstra, the visual effects supervisor on A New Hope or Star Wars. It wasn't fully their invention from scratch. There had been like, I, what was the university that they said that they had kind of a an early... Long Beach? Was it? Yeah. Like an early version of it. Yeah. But this was the first time they kind of brought it to Hollywood and made use of it all over a film, you know, where a film relied on it to this degree. So it really set the stage for a whole new generation of special effects. Oh, for the Berkeley experiment. Is that, that's what you're referring to? Where they like yeah. they they bring the camera through the cityscape of the miniature. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's that was at yeah. Berkeley. Yeah, with the um, they were using that mirror system with the extended kind of looks like a like a you know a giant needle essentially down into the miniature. <laughs> yeah, well, I I thought they did a really good job of explaining it, uh, like exactly how it all worked. I have to say, the first time I was ever on set where they were using motion control, I don't even think I was fully aware. I was like, what is this giant machine with like the camera making these passes over and over again? And somebody like gave me a pretty crappy explanation of it. And so I feel like I've, I've been able to learn even more how deeply important it is just going back there and seeing some of this stuff. Yeah. I don't know if it was an ILM, like, I don't know. I don't know if they said in, in the documentary if it was like they made this up or if it was kind of like an older technique that they sort of refined and perfected. And then obvi- and then by, 
by the time they were working on Empire, they had the machine that had four projectors instead of two in it. Oh, yeah. But, dude, I didn't... uh, Honestly, now I know. Like, for however long I wondered how they did anything, now I know. Like, I, I didn't... I was not aware that they took literally the same frames of film, stacked them up with each other, and then ran them through a machine, and it shot... You know, they would shoot the X-Wings with no lights on the engines. Then they would shoot only the engine lights in the same in the spot where they needed to be. And then they mash those together, shoot it through the projector and film it again. And that's what you see in the movie. And that's how the engines light up. I had no idea that's how that process was done, you know, through like a separate machine. Yeah. And and the, the lightsaber, the original lightsabers, any anything like that, that was a second or third or fourth by the time Empire layer of the film was smashed together like different reels of film smashed together to make those shots. I had no idea that's how that happened. I'm doing a terrible job explaining it. Watch the show. <laughs> uh, somebody once explained it to me um, pretty well. If you go back and watch any older movie that you like, you may not have noticed it the first time, but paying attention to it, any time where there is an effect, you'll notice there's an increased amount of film grain. Um, And that Mm -hmm. is because of how many times they've had to run it through and shoot back over it. And so each time you do that, you lose, you know, a a little bit of clarity, which was the reason why it was so amazing that they were able to do so many at once, because then you're not losing as much. Because it's not like you're watching the Battle of Hoth thinking, "Mm, this is really lost quality. You're not. (laughs) So it's incredible. I just love yeah. the the idea too, and I mean, I don't know if this is the right place to put this, Adam, but like, I just love the like very basic idea that uh, what was it, two million dollar budget for a New Hope, and a million of it went to not even all of the special effects, just the development of the tools to make the special effects. Was yeah. half of the budget was gone in the development of the tools. So when they they showed like the escape pod was like a three second clip. That was the only clip after George was in Tunisia filming, like basically the opening, the first act of A New Hope. He's like, all right, so what do you got for me? You used half the budget. And it's like a three second clip of the escape yeah. pod. Yeah. <laughs> but everyone was like, that's the best thing I ever saw. <laughs> and they were like, talking in that shot about how like there were no stars even. It was just, you just saw like yeah. the specs, yeah. you know, that they exploded around it, but they didn't even have it figured out how to put space behind it yet. And that's like what's in the film. Like the the actual shooting out of the, the when the pod first ejects, it's like just those specs of dust. Micah. They put in. Yeah, Micah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it turns out that uh, used the majority of George's emotional budget as well because he <laughs> yeah, lost but shit dude, when he saw that dude, that's all that they had done. There's something to be said for like any you know wildly successful entrepreneur that's become a multi-billionaire like that takes that first seed money and doesn't do what they were originally supposed to do <laughs> yeah. with the money. I think yeah. that is there. There's a genius in there that only a, a select few humans that will ever walk the planet will have to say, "I have an idea." And I'm going to convince all these people to give me an absurd amount of money because of my idea. But then I'm not actually going to work on my idea. I'm going to recruit all these people that I know share my vision to sort of like seed my idea into the soil. And that's what he did. He was he recruited all of these people. I'm going to start a VFX house. I could be throwing this entire movie into the trash can because all of my effects budget is going towards this thing. I don't think he even knew that, you know, I don't think Steve Jobs really knew that. I don't think Elon Musk really knew, you know, but these dudes just figure out a way to find the right people and they take this asinine amount of money that should have just been spent on the electric car or the digital effects shots for Star Wars and they build ILM with it. I mean, it's it's crazy. 
because it, it in essence, built the dude's legacy. I mean, everything he did after Empire, Jedi, the prequels, and Lucasfilm was built on the back of this idea. I think one of the heartbreaking things is that the money never goes, that much money never goes into the visual effects anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You think of, of a lot of these recent movies as being so visual effects heavy and they are, but you know, having, having worked at a visual effects house, a few different ones, every single one is so struggling for money. They're all underbidding each other. Nobody is offering them as much to begin with as they need to do it. And then, as I mentioned, they're pixel pushing. And so originally you had bid for this amount of time and this much work, and then they've extended that like almost double so that you can go back and redo, redo, redo. And by the end of it, you're losing money on a job. I mean, I worked at a a studio that we won the Oscar for visual effects and then had to move out of one of our buildings because we lost money on the job. Dude. Somebody in, in the series said something about this whole entire process cost, I think it was $2 million, and then said, these days you can't get a shot. A, A, <laughs> the letter A, shot for $2 million. <laughs> yeah. If Marvel, which has you know 484 films that you have to watch in whatever certain order, and they all cost $940 billion to make, and they're not paying the people who make the movies, what, what, what world are we living in? Like, even our entertainment is so capitalized that you can't, you know, you, you start talking about it in this way, and it actually makes you not want to enjoy it because you think of people that are working so hard to create it and retiring dead inside. Like, that's not right. Yeah. That's not okay. And it's what makes episode one of this documentary so cool. As you said, Nick, like the the punk rock of it, the like the group of the band of rebels, pun intended, that came together because they had a vision and they were excited about making movies. They were excited about making things blow up on camera. And that was it. And that's the thing that that's it. You know, they 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 kept saying over and over and over about how much time they spent together on and off the clock, how close they were, how much fun they had. Even Spielberg talked about he didn't want to leave the place. He wanted, yeah. everyone there was so creative, so into film. It's like a frat house for nerds. Yeah, just everyone, uh, and he mentioned it being ILM, not NFL. Like it was very much <laughs> yeah. nerds into <laughs> computers and you know monsters and special effects and movies. And nowadays, it, obviously it's different because everyone who's in visual effects is working for these giant juggernaut studios that you know they're cranking out these billion dollar films but the love of it i mean it is a lot like you know early band days when you're just in the van grinding and you're stoked just to be out there playing shows you're stoked just to be in the studio doing a 17 hour day and then you know at dawn listening to the mix in the car you know you do it strictly for the love and sometimes that's when magic happens that changes the world Mm -hmm. so here we are all right let's move on down this list a little bit kate you'll have some insight here for sure Go motion, the type of stop motion that was introduced, I don't know if it was specifically invented by, but definitely was made so that The Empire Strikes Back could look as real as it looked. Can you explain the concept of go motion versus traditional stop motion? I could give it a shot, but it'd be cooler if you'd say it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You start, and then I'll tell you if you get it wrong. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, I definitely know it. So traditional stop motion is just, you go frame by frame, you have your, you have your model you've, with the armature and you go frame by frame and make a little move, you capture another frame, make another little move, you capture another frame. And over time, that gives you the illusion of motion. Go motion adds 
a slight movement, and they use motion control to make this happen, a slight movement of the camera to introduce motion blur into it, like an actual object moving across the frame would put on actual film. I mean, it is an actual object in front of an actual camera, but when you're not snapping a bunch of stills, essentially, and you're actually putting some real motion in there, you can simulate the look that it's a true movement and you weren't doing it frame by frame. Is that right enough? Yes. It's, it's, the motion, it's the motion blur that is the number one key to it. And obviously the best example of that is with the tauntauns um, running yeah. across there. And that, that's one that um, I feel like gets used when people are explaining the concept of it. So, yeah, I don't know if it's, you know, in a record book is officially invented by Phil Tippett, but I think that anybody that you talk to is going to say Phil Tippett. Like if you say go motion, they're going to say Phil Tippett. Yeah. Um, and that that's definitely something he he's the king of capturing like really realistic movements. It's one of the reasons yeah. that they they kept him on Jurassic Park, even when his you know role was sort of redundant. It's because no one could make those dinosaurs move like he could. So you, you need him. That's a really great part of episode six of this documentary too is that yeah i mean it goes to exactly what you're saying kate like i feel like and what we've been talking about that how it's a family and it's no egos and like when it came time where someone basically or a bunch of people developed actual cgi they were like well we can't just let phil go you know like we have to have phil stay here and like use his expertise and he was basically the like i don't know what his exact uh title was but he was like the Dinosaur director supervisor of, yeah of, yeah. of it's the how meme. to make these things look more yeah. you know even more realistic like he had yeah. he had talent there and it wasn't just and he was family so it wasn't just like all right we don't need you anymore it was no how do we repurpose and keep you around and use your expertise to make this all even better yeah i've had people come up to me and say like oh man like dennis Murin really screwed over phil by pushing for the computers and and they must hate each other and i was like oh my god no they've been best friends <laughs> since before star wars and they are literally still best friends they go out for hot dog dates like a few <laughs> times a month like yeah. they love each other and so yeah there was never going to be a jurassic park that didn't involve phil because mm -hmm. he is one the best in motion and two like his dinosaur knowledge is unreal yeah. <laughs> I, I i brought down a model the other day and he i said something like oh this brontosaurus and he was like excuse me that is a brachiosaurus <laughs> and like very <laughs> upset at me <laughs> the, there's something that i'm i'm so glad that they that they recognized at that point that i think a lot of folks in computer anything any kind of computer art don't realize is that art still needs to be the foundation the computer tools are just tools so phil's expertise as an artist and all the institutional knowledge that he had gained from studying anatomy of in this case dinosaurs and the movement of living beings can't be replaced with just a set of digital tools mm -hmm. that you, you need. I mean, for now, you need that knowledge to make things move the way that our brains expect them to move. That, that reminds, I remember I have this quote written down, Kathleen Kennedy said specifically about Dennis Murren, but 
she said that he would never push like a new technological idea or tool or something just to use it. And it always had to like serve the story and have energy. Does it make you feel something? Is it majestic? You know, and like that kind of that's that reminds me of that, you know, like it can't just be about the technology and it has to serve a purpose, look real, make the you're making you're making a movie here. It's entertainment. You know, it all goes back to that. It's entertainment. It's not let's let's do this because we can it's yeah it's not a tech demo people aren't going to remember this if they don't like the story yeah. you know well speaking of um digital things and computers next thing on the list here is one of a few things that came from lucas's sort of frustration and impatience with the process he's he had a line about i wish i could just connect my brain to a computer <laughs> and have everything that's in here just translated to what's on the screen the process of editing film, the process of editing audio, all of it was just so frustrating to him. And, and God, looking at it, I cannot imagine. I've been editing video digitally for more than half my life. I'm kind of an editor at heart, but I never touched anything analog. I started on a laptop with uh, you know, a, a trial version of Premiere, and that's what I know. So the idea of taking the actual film and holding it and trying to go like, where's the frame? Yeah. Shit, okay, cut, <laughs> tape. Oh my God. So I get it, George, you, you're right. And thank you. But the, uh, the first thing that he did was get a team moving on digital audio because obviously that's, you know, it's much smaller file size. It's a, it's a, it's lower hanging fruit than, than digital video and nonlinear digital editing, which came next. But the SoundDroid digital audio system was a, a kind of a predecessor to Pro Tools and the other digital audio workstations that we know as musicians and most folks know. I think that like as a product fizzled out, I think it was sold off and maybe Avid bought that at some point. Nonetheless, the SoundDroid digital audio system was developed and it laid the groundwork. Uh, nonlinear digital film editing, which is what George was most frustrated with, it seems like. Nonlinear meaning you don't have to have literally a linear piece of film that you cut together in sequence. It's like we all know it where you just have... You know, in the case of your phone, you have your camera roll or you have a folder full of files on a computer and you just put shit wherever the hell you want. You just make your TikTok. Yeah. You just, you know, put on whatever song is trending right now and do the worst dance anyone's ever seen. Um, That nonlinear digital film editing system was the Edit Droid. So you had Sound Droid and Edit Droid and eventually was sold to Avid in 1993. So I guess it started much earlier than that. But Avid being the company that Avid was kind of like the up until the past 10, 15 years was the industry standard for digital editing in film. Avid bought Pro Tools as well at some point, probably 15, 20 years ago. So again, a tool created out of necessity or frustration that led to pretty much all that we know right now. It's crazy, dude. It's crazy how many seeds were planted for everything creative that exists by this company. It's crazy. All right, next on the list, probably the biggest one in my life and in several people on this call right now, Photoshop, you know, the Photoshop came from sort of the, the second generation of the, the Lucasfilm team, John Knoll. They were like the second class. Yeah. John Knoll and his brother developed this. It was John Knoll's brother that was kind of, he was like the kind of the coder, right? The kind of the... Yeah. It's almost like John Knoll took the George Lucas approach here and yeah. was telling his brothers like, just do it. Just make yeah. this what thing this? I have just in my it. brain that I don't know how <laughs> yeah. to make. What if they could do this thing too? Yeah. 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 Or like John Knoll was Steve Jobs and his brother was was Waz, you know? Yeah. <laughs> poor Waz. So, uh, Actually, Waz is not poor at all. He's fine. But he's so, crying he's his way to the bank. He's doing just fine. 
<laughs> One of the another big thing in my life, Terminator Two. All of those effects were essentially done with the beta version of Photoshop that John Nolan and his brother created. Crazy dude, frame by frame. And having used Photoshop since I was 15 years old, it just hurts my brain to think about the fact that not only did they do that, did they go frame by frame and create these effects, but they invented the damn software that did it. <laughs> yeah. They built that from the ground up. It's what's cool. Is you were using the software like almost at the same time that they invented it. Yeah, I had Photoshop 2 that I got on like uh, 15 yeah. three and a half inch floppy disks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Jesus Christ. Like, that's kind of the biggest one in here for me, I guess, because of the time in my life when I started using Photoshop, like you said. You don't think about something like that. You think, oh yeah, motion control, all this kind of stuff, digital editing. You're like, yeah, yeah, filmmakers. But Photoshop, Photoshop. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I can't say the words to express like how big of a deal that is to me and digital film cameras are, are next on, on the list. And I want to say it was Sony, maybe it was Sony and Panavision maybe that he was talking to. And I think Sony was the one that ended up, you know, they built the original system kind of in collaboration with George. And it was another one of those things. It was a version of what George used to tell the, uh, the team. What's the quote? Oh, it's the name of one of the episodes. Just think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't remember who, who he said it to specifically, but George would have an idea and he would want something to happen and he'd be giving feedback. And in, in this case, it was Dennis Murin telling the story. And he said, well, what if we do so-and-so here? And he said, no, we, we can't do that because of X, Y, Z. And he goes, well, just think about it. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't accept no, but he wouldn't also demand necessarily that he go do it. He'd say, just think about it. And then he'd say, you know, an hour, hour later, he'd be sitting there and damn it, okay, well, what if I did this? And he would just, that would be a, yeah. a major motivation. And the next day he would come in with the solution. So mm -hmm. I feel like even on this big stuff, there was some version of that, just think about it, kind of feedback or push or perspective from Lucas that made something like a digital film camera happen. Like, here's what I need. Here's how I want to make this happen. And in, I want to say, I guess it would have been 2000 when they were shooting, they did Attack of the Clones fully digitally because... This, uh, this collaboration led to the digital film camera, the first actual production camera. Mm -hmm. Sticking with this, um, the, these digital tools here, the Pixar digital animation computer system before Pixar was a studio, before they were the, the animation studio that we all know them for, going back to Toy Story. Before Up made me cry. Yeah, before all of those movies made me cry. Yeah, that's true. That computer system, Pixar was just a, it was a computer in a box making that an animation possible. And there's a, there's an engineer who explains the concept of pixels creating an image. I forgot the guy's name, but he's uh, from the university. He's got the, the gold chalice on, remember that image? Mm -hmm. What is that guy's name? And he's like rendering that chalice down yeah. from yeah. like. And that was mid eighties, right? Which is crazy to think. And I, I just think of CG in my mind, kind of the feeling of when CG started is Terminator 2 is the abyss. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So seeing it before then is like, like, this is fake, right? They didn't have that, right? You know, it's, it's just mind-blowing. But when you really think about it, when you really break it down, the way he explains it, again, perfect explanation. You've got this grid of little squares. Each one of them has, you know, coordinates essentially, and each one of them is assigned a brightness and a color. It's just math when it comes down to it. Like having the computers that can do it, of course, that's a big deal, but... He had me go from no f***ing way to, oh, okay, yeah, you could do that in 83 or whatever. Okay, I can, I can see that. 
point being, all of that led to Pixar, which eventually was spun off. Lucas realized, I, I forgot what he said specifically, the realization that, you know, he he didn't want to try to run another studio or something like that. He didn't want an animation studio, right? Is it something like that? Can I just say he very much glossed over that bit and that um, for a lot of insiders there, I know that there were former employees that were like, um, no, he needed money. <laughs> okay. He desperately needed money. So Noted. this was like a financial decision and they totally <laughs> glossed over it. But, you know, it makes a better story to say like, right. it was time for them to fly on their own. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. I guess that pretty much was pre- like he needed money because he was doing the prequels, right? Like, or well, I assume something also, that was that I timing. Divorce, I think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that'll do it. Gotcha. That'll do it. Yeah. But as we we saw in the film, Steve Jobs bought Pixar because he was also in a situation where life was in flux. He was he had been let go from Apple. He was building the next computer system at the time. Bought Pixar and then helped mature that company sold that off as well. And it became, you know, I, I guess he sold it directly to, to Disney was when it left his hands. Right. And that's when it truly became the Disney Pixar that we all know. And when that deal happened, my, uh, my partner was working at Lucasfilm at the time when it was sold. And um, in the like all company meeting, when George was talking to everyone, it was, he said it was actually quite poignant that he said, you know, years ago, we split off part of our family and they went off into their own entity as Pixar. And I hope now that everyone can find happiness and being reunited as a family. Like now you're all mm. back together again. That's amazing. That's really good. <laughs> and to wrap it up, just the, the very idea of a photorealistic CG character was something that most didn't think could be done. And although we can look back and, see the flaws in those first few Lucasfilm and ILM were the first to go for it and make it happen with the Phantom Menace. Yeah. And when you, when you really look at it in context of the time, it's hard to like most of these things overstate how big of a deal it was. I actually, as a 19 year old, Ryan, you, you mentioned not being convinced. I, as a 19 year old was just like, Holy shit. What am I seeing? This is, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. Is that, is, is that a computer? Is that a real, I mean, it's know? impressive. I, I think I probably did feel that way at 19, but I, I, I don't, I don't think it, it helped for whatever reason it didn't hold up. But I, but I think yeah. all for, for the amount of times we've talked about star Wars and its purpose, you know, being a star Wars podcast, not an ILM podcast. Right. So like we've talked <laughs> about star Wars, for chill for kids right and like our yeah. love of star wars being formed when we were very young who cares if watto was was a cgi character that i don't get at 25 like that's not why he was created and it, and yeah i can respect the idea that like 10 year olds around the globe had their minds blown by the phantom menace right and yeah. that's the dice that they were willing to roll like we think this is ready and we think this is ready yeah. for the audience that we are targeting, which is not 40 year old dudes who are going to complain on Twitter yeah. about <laughs> the sequel trilogy. They didn't, they, you know, that wasn't a thing yet. Right. So the target audience was the same target audience that a new hope was adults liking a new hope was a, was an accident. Like Lucas yeah, wanted yeah. to make a film that spoke to his childhood and the films he grew up loving. That's the same thing that I, I think my point just being that they weren't afraid of, of, formed minds not 
accepting the reality of CGI because they knew right. that young minds would soak it up. They knew that young minds would see it and think it was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. And yeah. however I feel about the prequels, I respect the shit out of that. There's also, this is, this is something interesting that we've talked about on the podcast. The prequels get, especially the Phantom Menace, get so much hate for having too much CG, but it's not well known just how much miniature and model work mm-hmm. was in that film. So it's, mm-hmm. it's probably more about the compositing and the leaning on green screen and that skill set ne- not necessarily being mature enough rather than the images themselves. And Kate, you can probably speak to, you know, if you know some of the history of how many, just the sheer number of models, miniatures, oh, yeah. bigatures that were in The Phantom Menace. The, the, my favorite one actually is um, in the crowd scenes. I don't know if you guys have seen like behind the scenes on this or not, but it's yeah, for the, yeah. the stadium seating and it's literally just like, sorry, cotton swabs, not the brand name, um, yeah. painted. And then somebody underneath literally just like jiggling them, them so that the people yeah. look like they're moving in the stands. Like that one blew my mind. It, it can't be topped like that. The, yeah. the level of simplicity and yet how real it comes across that nobody even considered it. They probably are like, oh, it's just CG fans mm-hmm. and out mm-hmm. there. No, yeah, that stuff's real. But that, that problem solving, that like ingenuity of, you know, having a bunch of cotton swabs and then just the, the tickling of the bottom of them <laughs> for the moving is so much in the tradition of like the, the few quotes from Ken Ralston and, and Richard Edlund talking about cheating effects you know just making it work best cheapest fastest way to yeah, do dude, things potatoes and wads of gum yeah <laughs> and a yeah. sneaker right potatoes as asteroids <laughs> and um, <a> sneaker <laughs> yeah and the what was the other one the uh oh the falcon jumping to hyperspace so the way the they polaroid had, dude yes so the really? way that crazy they, they would do a move <laughs> crazy you know that the 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 ship has to stay stationary because the light has to stay the same way so they move the camera instead of the model but to make the Falcon disappear, jump to hyperspace and completely disappear. They couldn't back up far enough to get it small. It was still kind of like medium in the shot. So he took a Polaroid of the thing, put that on glass, and I assume they painted it and lit it in a way where, you know, you get the engine burn and everything. So it was this big rather than this big. You can't, I just did that on a podcast, an audio <laughs> podcast. Um, but moving away from that It's this quickly big enough, instead of this big. yeah. You guys see that, right? Yeah. Guys, oh. yeah. Do you guys get that? You saw yeah. it. Listeners, you, to- you understand yeah, cool. the concept of this big versus this big, right? Imagine one's smaller and one's bigger. Yeah, you, just, got it? you heard the difference in my uh, tone and pronunciation, right? Um, yeah, that, that's what made that work. It was one of those just like, I can't do that. Well, just think about it. Well, shit, okay, maybe I'll get a Polaroid, you know? And that was one of those shots that just blew people away. Like that, they talked about got jumping to hyperspace in the people. theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the idea of man, we could go forever. What what they knew they had to do to to convey the feeling of speed or the the feeling of jumping to hyperspace. In the case of hyperspace, it, if they had just done it and it was straight and the stars were just kind of static, it wouldn't have that that feeling that it gets from spinning in it a little bit. I don't know if they mentioned that in this documentary specifically, but. That was kind of the trick. Notice every time they jump to hyperspace, the whole star field spins, even just slightly. And doing things like that, that comes from this ragtag group of people from all these different disciplines that are all artists kind of at heart, bringing their experience and realizing, okay, well, if you want it to feel fast, you have to, you need some kind of background so you can see the contrast, you can see the motion blur 
you know, as, as the subject passes it, or if you're going to go to hyperspace, something's going to, there's going to be this disorienting feeling, whatever. You don't just invent those ideas there. They come from somewhere. And in the case of this team, it was all their different experiences and their different backgrounds. And it's just, it's so awesome. I just, do you think I could like move in there? Maybe? <laughs> I mean, like they hired a 15 year old. You should at least look yeah. it up and look in the phone book, see if you can find the number for ILM and yeah. give them a call. I'll see if I can get one of them to come to my apartment and look at my robot. Dude, <laughs> quick story of John Knoll. Like that was my favorite part because it was so all based in innocence. Insane. Like he's at the Anaheim Convention Center, first of all, where Celebration just was with his dad. And John Knoll just looks up the, pulls out a phone book looks to see if Industrial Light and Magic is in the phone book. It is. He calls them and says he's interested in coming in. And they're like, yeah, sure. And then he just shows up and he gets a tour. <laughs> and he talks like an employee that matters. Like yeah, some, yeah. I forget the name. He says who answered the phone, but it's like someone who's being interviewed on, on the, in the documentary. Answered <laughs> the phone. I, yeah. I believe it was Rose. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, I actually myself contacted Rose as a young intern and was like, hey, really? Uh, at this point, I want to say they were split off into Kerner, which mm-hmm. is the next iteration of the model shop. And she totally, she had me come down. I like met a bunch of people. So, so that, that spirit never stopped. Yeah. That's it's amazing. just so innocent. You know, it's like you want to be able to be trusting of people, but I, I don't yeah. know. I feel like it just, it just seems so like, uh, you know, I don't know, naive, you know, like, yeah, just come on down. Could be anybody, you know, they could have yeah. literally anybody with bad intentions you could have invited in. I don't know. But that that spirit of curiosity combined and, and drive combined with the naivete of being a young person and just being an artist and going for it yeah. is so essential to everything that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. The original team, everyone who joined, the project itself, the original project of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Just like us with, as musicians, we all thought like, yeah, I could do, go do that and be in a band and like mm-hmm. get signed and go on tour and make albums. Yeah, well, let's yeah. just do that. Yeah. It's a never tell me the odds kind of situation because yeah. if you really do the math, no, that shit's not going to work. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Well, it just shows you how like innovative you can be and creative you can be when there really is no ceiling. There wasn't a lot of times, not on the documentary anyway, where people were like, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. We don't have the budget, right. whatever. You know, it's just, I guess because they constantly pumped out successful things, maybe they got what they needed all the time. But it just, I think it says a lot about not having like a ceiling creatively. For sure. Kate, I, I want to, um, we should probably start wrapping up here, but I want to talk a little bit about Phil Tippett specifically because obviously you have a, rela- a relationship with him, working relationship, and you, you know him well as a person. Mm-hmm. Phil is a legend. He is the one when it comes to stop motion, creature making. A lot of what we, especially folks our age, you know, when we think about the creatures of, of movies of our generation and our era, most of that is owed to Phil and who he influenced and the, the people he worked with. Um, maybe talk a little bit about him and your experiences. I know there's, there's a great tested video about the hollow chessboard and revisiting that, remaking those figures and whatnot. So tell a story of your choosing or, to, or give us, do you have it right there? You have one? <laughs> uh-huh. these, these, uh, these were some of the lost hollow chess figures that we, we discovered uh, a photo of him with the original concepts that he created. And uh, George Lucas picked eight, but he had created 10. And it was uh, one of our coworkers was looking at the photo going, well, who, who 
are these two other creatures? I've never seen those before. And so we kind of went on this quest to recreate the lost hollow chest figures. Wow. So that was that was something that I, I got to do with him that was quite a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, he he really... The way he operates is so different than almost any other person I've ever worked with, especially because my experience has been working in visual effects miniatures. You're recreating something photorealistically. It has to match absolutely perfectly. We have tons and tons of reference. It's going to be cut in with, you know, the real life thing. And so there's a lot of rules and restrictions. And when you work with Phil, it's very much free form of like, he might come in one day and just be like, Hey, I need you to like make a thing and like, give me bare minimum description of it and then walk away. And <laughs> at first that can be paralyzing. Uh, Cause I'm like, wait, but I need to make sure I'm making what you want and trying to like pick that out of his brain. But to him, he's like, I surround myself with people who are good at what they do and who have their own artistic visions. And I want to nurture that. And that was how he thrived working with George. So George very much would come to him and say, I need 10 monsters and he would just make them. And so like, like with the hollow chest ones, he might make a few extra and George would come in and say this one, this one, this one. But as they mention in the the series, he was never one that you had to check back up on as far as time management goes, as far as delivering, it gets into his brain possibly because of some of the mental health struggles that he has dealt with. It is all consuming for him and it's how he gets, um, you know, peace inside. So he Mm -hmm. goes full force commitment right into that. And it's truly unbelievable. I don't think I've ever met anyone who can see so much in his brain beforehand. You know, I, I will have to really struggle to, to, make a creature appear to me as I'm trying to create something. But he knows everything ahead of time. He can see the motion in his head. He knows how something's supposed to move. And he knows exactly how different monsters are supposed to look. And he can just have that ready at a moment's notice. It's it's truly incredible. It's so interesting how he talks. This is all just like becoming clear to me now as you're describing this. He talks about being dyslexic and it being, because of that, reading a screenplay is just not something that he can mess with, you know, he needs to I have it. Exp- that part. He needs to have explained yeah. to him. He needs to talk through it. So storyboards, it, he want, he wanted to see like yeah. images yeah. popping off in his mind. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it makes you think about the idea of, you know, if, if you're lacking in your capacity for one thing, you make up for it in something else. So where we may not be able to fully visualize something because he can't read on a page and see things in that way, he, he has kind of superpower to visualize in a different way. And that's so fascinating to me. Yeah. And something that I really connected with him on is it's, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I assume it's something that maybe translates into music as well. But when you are fully immersed in that creative process, it shuts out so much of what else is going on. Um, So again, for him, for him and his bipolar, disorder, it, it really helps him, you know, if he's got a, a sculpting tool in his hand, um, if he is focused on creating this thing, then all of the rest gets quieted down. And he has, he's reached out to me a few times through horrific events in my life. And he'll just call me up, you know, my house burned down and he called me and he's like, I, 
I understand you're going through hell right now. So come, come sit with me in the shop and we'll make stuff together and you don't have to think about anything. And it's just the, the impact that that has on you. Um, and I, after seeing the episode where he very openly talked about um, his mental health struggles, I came in and I said, Phil, I thought it was really great that you talked about that. And he said, I think it needed to be talked about. And so I hope that it's received well. And I said, it was received well by me and my partner. I looked over and he was crying. So I know that I I think it landed. I think it's even more great that they left it in the show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fact that they thought that was something important to leave in the edit. I I thought that was really, you know, remarkable and special. I mean, it's great too, you know, just, I mean, we're all, we have no shortage of, displaying our emotions and talking about ourselves here on this podcast as, as three men, Just but a bunch of sad boys. And we're, over here. And we're no, and we're no, uh, we're no spring chickens, but obviously Phil is older than us. So for even an older person yeah. to an older male to be that open and vulnerable and yeah. say those things without like, he wasn't weird about it. You know, I feel like that, that really came across as, as a, a big moment for sure. And I, I connected with that idea of uh, later in life realization and then looking back and kind of dissecting your, your history with the, the, the advantage of hindsight, you know, to realize that all of us as creative people have pretty fucking weird brains, you know, and sometimes we're just kind of quirky and eccentric. Sometimes we have mental health stuff that we didn't know we'd been dealing with our entire lives. And it is the creative process. It is the idea of making something that it's like your medicine. You know what I mean? And he, he says that in so many words in, in the documentary. And man, I really connected. It was great. I love you. I know. Kate, I'll let you go first. Tell us your favorite moment. <laughs> by, by I let you, you, you may not want to go first. So may, I may be uh, forcing this on you. We could also edit it so you do go first if you need a, <laughs> a minute to... Uh... <laughs> if you need a minute to think of something. What is your favorite part of this documentary? I I would have said, you know, Phil talking about his process was definitely my favorite part. I know we just discussed that, but I guess maybe um, a close second is um, watching everybody be such a family as they talked about and, and seeing those times when they said, you know, we would we would stay here from noon to midnight and we would do slip and slide out front and we would sit in a makeshift jacuzzi hot tub thing and <laughs> just the true love and creativity that was happening there. So much love. Nick, how about you? Uh, I do have a, a quote and I think a scene that we haven't, an effect, I guess I should say, uh, that I like. So Ron Howard's a, a decent part of this documentary series too. And uh I think it was at the top of one show. He just said uh, the vibe at ILM was the intersection of loosey goosey intellectualism and real outlier thinking and enough angsty nerdy need to sort of be a part of something that created a certain kind of energy and innovation. And I was like, that's like uh, a lot of words. And I just, I really, <laughs> it's like really hard to read actually, but it just came out of his mouth off the top of his head. And I'm like, yeah, but I get that. You know, it's like, it's angsty. It's nerdy. Nerdy. It's the need to create and innovate, and it just—I I loved that. It was—it—it it almost seems like that should. If this was a DVD set, that should be like a quote on the back. 
For sure. Um, and, and the scene I like, it's actually not Star Wars related. It's when they were talking about imploding versus exploding the house in Poltergeist. Yes. Dude, oh my God. So cool. So cool. They right? laid it on because its back. They laid it on its back and then you watch it on, on the ground in the movie. Yeah. The shotguns got me. I laughed so exactly, hard. Right? Yes. I laughed so hard. I still don't to help it down the, the tube. Shotguns. To help it go down yeah. the tube. And he's like, you know, good English guns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and dude, and that shit would not happen. No 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 effects supervisor, no anyone on set would ever be like, Yeah, go ahead and just mount the shotguns over there. Yeah. And just put, you guys, that shit would you never happen. Left, now. right, you guys manning your shotguns. You good to go? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just loved, like, obviously it it needed to be done. I remember someone uh, someone who clearly didn't know anything was like, can't you just explode it and run it backwards? It's like, yeah. that's, not, that's not right. Um, so they had to figure out, and it's really pretty crude, which I think is the, the best way. It, it was built with a ton of wire to pull it through a hole, and there was also a vacuum, right, involved somewhere, yeah. like a, yeah. a, a mm-hmm. shop vac or something that would pull it through the hole. I don't know. It was just also the way they explained it and showed the schematics of it. It was all very crude, but it was amazing. It was so cool. William Ryan Key, how about you? Okay, I love Walt Disney. Do you guys know that about me? <laughs> My fiance and I are literally getting married at Disney World. I love Walt Disney. I love Disney World. I I'm, I wear a Disney World t-shirt every other day now that I just live here and don't have to wear like real clothes. You know, I can just wear like I live at the beach. But I don't go anywhere. I I was so enthralled by Harrison Ellenshaw's story, the matte painter, for a couple of yeah. reasons. First of all, and and like the overreaching arc of why I was fascinated, I didn't know matte painting was a thing. I honestly, <laughs> I learned that in this documentary, I had no idea yeah. that when I watched Luke get his hand cut off, that all of that was a painting on a piece of glass. I had no idea. So fascinated by the concept of matte painting. Like I, I just was, I was blown away. The scene where he was pulling out all the different slides and showing you, yeah. you know, this is a different angle on Vader's Star Destroyer. This is, and then showing the film right after the, the Cloud City landing pad. All, I just was blown away. But I think what really got me was he got like a C in painting. You know what I mean? Like hmm. he, he, there was something in there about like he took a class for like like some tor- some some type of rudimentary drawing, drawing basically. Rudimentary yeah. drawing, yes, right. Like some yeah. some type of like basic entry level. Can you be an artist? Course, right? Where I'm sure the metric for whether you're successful or not is absolute bullshit. Like how they decide whether or not you're good at it. But either way, he like didn't do well in the class. Um, his father, Peter Ellenshaw, worked directly under Walt Disney and like painted Peter Pan and and Mary Poppins and all, like all the original, actually Peter Pan, maybe not because that was animated, but Mar- Mary Poppins and uh, yeah. give me give me another, give me another early, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, like early Disney live action, like where there were huge, you know, London, the huge cityscape of London in the background. Yeah. His dad painted all of that in those films, won Academy Awards for it. Like uh, crazy, crazy that he like went to school thinking, okay, I guess I'll do what my dad did and was probably (sighs) discouraged by his professors. Like, no, you're not good at this. And then went on. You're not as good as your dad. Went on to sit in this documentary that we love and, and, you know, that we watched as Star Wars fans as like one of the pioneers of visual effects. Like so, so unbelievably cool. So that was my, my favorite thing was learning about matte painting and then learning the story behind the guy who matte painted Star Wars. 
And he came at night, so he missed all the fun lunch parties. That was so sad. <laughs> yeah. He did not show up for the free beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, yeah. He came after hours working overtime, essentially. He would leave Disney and mm-hmm. then come to work on Star Wars. Cool life. Yeah. <laughs> my, I, my favorite thing or my favorite moment is more like a favorite kind of uh, section of the first episode. Maybe the first half or even two thirds of the first episode really learning about the original team and the backstories. It had this, this like uh, movie montage, like assembling the Ocean's Eleven kind of vibe to it. You know what I mean? You son of a bitch, I'm in. Exactly. (laughs) Hearing about everybody's backstory and how they, like Dykstra was like, like a modern cowboy in a way, like pilot, you know, race car driver, this got, he's got all this edge, you know, you just imagine him with like cigarettes rolled up in his sleeves, you know, smoking, you know, like leather jacket. And then you, him paired with like true nerds, you know, and I forgot, maybe it was Lauren Peterson, maybe talking about like, I I was very much not that guy, you know, or it was, you know, one of the other guys. Dennis Muren said he very much was not into like racing cars and being all that stuff. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So that, again, ragtag group of all these different people, seeing it come together at the beginning, it was just done so well in a way that's like, all right, what are they going to cook up? We all know what it's going to be, but it still had this like anticipation and this suspense of like, all right, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? So I'll probably revisit that first episode, at least the first half of it, dozens of times. Because I, I just, I'm a sucker for montages. And even though this mm-hmm. wasn't a true montage, it gave me that feeling. So it's great. Oh, also a couple more things that came from this team. These two things don't really have anything to do with Star Wars or visual effects per se, but the fact that Richard Edlund designed the Star Trek alphabet, the original Star Trek alphabet, and that's just like, just a thing like, oh yeah, I also did this, by the way. What? (laughs) What? And then created the pig nose mini guitar amp. Yeah. Like in the nineties, I was like, Oh dude, I got to get one of those things. That's so tight that I just, I could put that right on my nightstand. I could play my guitar. So you were familiar with it independent of this. hundred percent. Wow. I wanted one so badly. That's so cool. Those were very much a thing. Yeah. And again, a group of people that with all these different skills came together to make this amazing film. It's just magic. All right, let's wrap it up. Kate, do you have anything to tell the listeners, things you got coming up, anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, I don't know when this is being released, but... Thursday. Oh, perfect. Um, If anybody is in the San Jose area for Silicon Valley Comic Con, Adam Savage's Silicon, uh, I'll be doing at least four panels there, uh, moderating a Q&A with Bill Tippett at a screening of Mad God, our project. Uh, I've been helping him on for 10 years and uh, judging some build contests. So definitely come out. And if you haven't already seen Mad God, it's available on Shutter. And um, we just recorded our DVD commentary. So I'm guessing a DVD's coming soon. Nice. Where can people find you on social media to keep up? At Kate Sebaker, either on Twitter or Instagram. That's uh, where I hang out. Nick, how about you? All the social media is at Nick Bayside. If you haven't listened to the new Bayside song called Good Advice, please do that. And this is a, a video podcast, right? Here's my children's book, guys. Look at it. <laughs> That's the cutest thing I've it seen all day. It just came out. So if you uh, have a child or, you know, the holidays are going to be here in a short couple of months. If you need a little stocking stuffer, buy my children's book. It's called That's Okay. You can buy it at hecreative.com. Nice. Ryan Key. Uh, my socials are at William Ryan Key, 
Kate, I appreciate someone else who just like uses their name on socials. Like that's it. Yeah. That's just my first, <laughs> middle, and last name. At William Ryan Key. Uh, tomorrow, exciting day. My little musical venture, Star Wars fans unite Jeddah. I've uh, been working on this for almost five years with my good friend Ryan Mendez, who was the lead guitar player in Yellow Card, the band I was in for many, many years. We have sort of an ambient electronica dance, fun, cool project we've been working on for a long time called Jeddah. J-E-D-H-A, and we have a new song called Two Piece dropping tomorrow, Friday the 26th. Nice. So listen to uh, Two Piece and the other music we've released. You can find Jetta anywhere you stream music. And, uh, you know, may the force be with you and all that. (laughs) My band had a song released yesterday at the time of this listening, or at the time of the release of this podcast. episode uh it's called real life story of the year's first new song in five years almost five four and a half years yeah cool it's dope i'm pumped yeah it feels uh, we feel like a real band again you can find that anywhere you stream music my stuff is all at adam the skull this podcast is at thank the maker pod on instagram and tiktok it's at thank the maker on twitter and if you want to support this podcast patreon.com slash thank the maker pod is where you can go to do that discord access exclusive content, watching and listening live. Those are all things that are available. And you could also just do it because you want to support us because podcasts are free. And it's weird because it costs money to make them. So uh, you could support us. That'd be cool. <laughs> appreciate you. Uh, also, tickets are on sale right now for Mosh Eisley. Emo Strikes Back. We, uh, we're doing um, sort of a Halloween party. It's our Star Wars themed emo night, October 28th in Las Vegas at uh, Backstage Bar and Billiards. It's going to be sort of a pre-party for the second weekend of the When We Were Young Festival. It's going to be wild. It's going to sell out, so buy your tickets soon. We're already prepping we're costumes, all the stuff. We're pumped. It's going to be a great night. MoshEisley.com is where you can go to get tickets. It'll take you straight to the ticket purchase place on the internet. Link in the show notes. That's correct. Ryan Key, close us out. Send us home with a quote. Yeah, this show was so quote-worthy. Like, there were so many quotes that when you go search George Lucas quotes, they're not there. You know, they're not on brainyquotes.com or whatever because they yeah. just happened. Now, the guy just says stuff where you're like, wow, thank thank you for months of podcast quotes, brother. Thank you very much. So Thank the maker. Thank the maker. You beat me to it. All right, so, so we are going to leave you tonight with a quote from the maker, George Lucas himself. Quote, people ask me, What's the secret of making movies? Persistence. That's it. And if you watch this documentary, that's, I mean, it's such a through line. Just these, these dudes and ladies never gave up. They just, they solved every problem. They got around every budget. They, they met every deadline. It's, a, it's a wild. So if you haven't watched it, and if us talking about it for 17 hours wasn't enough to convince you, go watch it. Go watch it. Through everything, heart attack scares and all. <laughs> just persist. All right. Kate, thank you again for being here. This has been really, really great to have you. Thanks, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Everyone, thanks for listening. And until next week, may the force be with you. 